This week, we welcome a guest who has been on a remarkable journey. Flora Tassi grew up in Cameroon. She completed her bachelor's in mathematics at Buya in Cameroon, received a second bachelor's and a master's in computer science at Rhodes and Cape Town in South Africa. She then earned her PhD in 3D computer vision at Cambridge in the UK, as well as intern at Microsoft and Google. Since then, she has co-hosted several of the Black and AI workshops at NeurIPS, filed a few patents, and, likely most importantly, founded her own company and later sold it. She's now leading AI research at Stream, the company that acquired her first startup, Celero. Stream offers AI and AR-powered communications, bringing artificial intelligence to the front lines of customer service. Welcome to the show, Flora. We're so excited to have you here with us. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. It's such a pleasure to be here. I'm, I'm very excited about this. So, of course, I'm really curious about your startup, Celerio, and you know the journey there. But I want to start a bit earlier than that. You grew up in Cameroon and started your university journey in mathematics. How did you choose mathematics and how did things evolve from there into computer science and AI? Okay, okay. Let's, let's go way back. <laughs> so... Um, Actually, from a very young age, I knew that I wanted to, to do graphics, but there was no graphics, well, computer graphics. And more importantly, I wanted to do research in computer graphics. And so that meant a path towards computer science, but then there was no bachelor in computer science. I least taught in English in my country at the time. So if I couldn't do computer science, the next best thing was mathematics. Uh, and so that's, that's how, how I, I go to University of Boya and then I do mathematics and then I take a few courses in computer science. And for me, math was just, uh, it, just kind of, it was just easy. It was the easiest thing I could do if I couldn't do computer science. But with the plan that I will do computer science after that, which happened. So that was how I got into mathematics. But then you had to move countries to uh, switch to computer science. How did that feel? Yeah, I think it was a 10-year plan. From the time I decided, so I, I watched Jurassic Park, uh, the movie, and I was like, wow, how are they making these dinosaurs kind of, you know, just be in their environment? I want to do that. And then realizing that there's no way I can do that in my country, right? And so there was like a 10-year plan for me to study mathematics, then go abroad, then do these steps, and ultimately do my PhD in computer science, hopefully in the field of graphics. And so... I just knew that I was going to have to travel outside. It was just a matter of where will I go, who had the best program in computer science. And uh, at the time, we decided on South Africa. They have very strong programs in computer science. They were doing great work in graphics, some of the best work in Africa. And so I just kind of decided that that's where I wanted to be. Then it turns out you moved again, right? <laughs> so much moving, yes. Yes, I did. I did my master's at the University of Cape Town after my stay uh, at Rose University. And then I just got to a point where I wanted to go to um, a university that had a bigger research group in computer graphics, and that was Cambridge. That was Cambridge University. So it was just, a, you know, thinking, what is the next step? Where can I go from there? What's the next big thing I could do? And yeah, Cambridge found its way on that list. And so that's, that's how I moved to the now, UK. it's interesting you... You really wanted to get into graphics inspired by watching Jurassic Park, a movie I also watched a long time ago, right? And, and, and yeah. really was you know, impressed by how realistic it was all made to look. You wanted to get into computer graphics, but actually you ended up in computer vision, which is the reverse problem of computer yes. graphics. And yeah, I'm curious, how did that happen? I wanted to make pretty pictures. That's how the whole thing started. And then realizing that I had no artistic skills. So there was just how I was gonna how was I going to make these 3D models if I couldn't draw, you know, <laughs> in my life depending on it, I couldn't. So that turned into the problem of how do you make it easier for people to create 3D content, which is one of the most tedious parts of the whole uh, graphics pipeline. And so if realizing that, well, we have objects all around us, why can't we just digitize them? And then we could go from, you know, a picture of something in our, in our space to a digitized version that we could then insert into a 3D uh, experience. And so that's how you then, I then start solving, okay, 
I need to then take images and then turn them into graphics, into 3D content. And once I have that, people can then create their pretty pictures or whatever application is needed. Starting in graphics, got into 3D vision and then into AI. So <laughs> it's a whole journey. But still with graphics in mind, it seems, still with creation yeah. of visual artifacts yeah. in mind. So I'm now, I'm in augmented reality. I mean, we could, we'll talk about that later, but I'm now in the augmented reality space, which for me is really the best because you get to work on both sides of the spectrum. Yeah, one thing anecdotally that that's kind of interesting is uh, one of our other other guests, uh, you might might know him, um, Sergey Levin. He also started wanting to do graphics and ended up in AI. <laughs> so it seems like there's you know a pattern here among our guests that uh, they might start out with wanting to do graphics but ending up in AI in the end. Now, when we look at your PhD, there's one one work specifically I'm pretty excited about, which is Shape to Vec which I think captures some of the ideas that have become pretty common in a lot of AI work is turning something into a vector, right? And then that vector becomes easier to work with. So can you say maybe a little bit about, you know, your motivation behind the shape to vec work, but also then give a little bit of an explanation of what does it do and what can you do with it? Um, so yeah, that was what I did in 20, 2016. And so the issue or the problem we're trying to solve was that we wanted to get 3D content, but using images or using hand-drawn sketches. And then we realized that, well, we have all of these big repository of 3D models that are already out there. Why can't we just search for what we want using, uh, using an image as a query, for instance? And so now you, have, you want to use something in one space to search for, for something in, in a different space. So you have different modalities. And then the, my question at the time was, how do we bridge the gap from natural images or let's say sketches to 3D, 3D objects? Uh, and so shape to vec really means taking a shape and then turning that into a vector. And so uh, you could take a 3D object and turn that into a vector. You could also take an image and turn that into a vector. The idea is that all of these vectors actually live in the same space. And so because they live in the same space, you can then use one vector and just find, oh, what is the nearest 3D shape to this vector? And then you could use that um, for, for search. And so that was really inspired by what to vec. And yeah, there were, there were a lot of work at, at the time around doing this for images. That was really amazing. It was really, it was really popular. And then they, what we wanted to do is take that, those ideas and then apply them to 3D shapes. And then you could have this thing where you could have words, images, 3D shapes, all living in the same space. And you could then use search one, well, use anything as a query to search any other shape. So it kind of, I'm just on setting kind of what the problem was and what was the inspiration behind the solution. And then uh, the way that we actually created shape, shape to web was to use semantics as a way of tying up all of these different modalities. Because if you think of an image of a chair and then the 3D shape of a chair, what really links them together is that semantic meaning. And if you could create vectors that can capture that semantic meaning, then you are able to really bridge the gap between these different worlds. And so shape to vec is really semantically aware descriptors. Yeah, and so that's how it came about. You said earlier you, you know, had trouble maybe drawing things to, you know, that you found, you know, artistic enough to be happy with. And so mm -hmm. you want the computer to help, right? Is it fair to say that with shape to fact that you don't, maybe don't need to draw that accurately. You can just sketch something out, even if it's a poor drawing and it might find then retrieve something else that's much higher quality that incarnates what you're looking for. Exactly. That, that was the goal. And, uh, and I think at the time we, compared to any method that was out there, I think we were something like we added 30% more accuracy compared to previous work when it comes to using hand-drawn sketches to search 3D shapes. So it was like a big gap and it was super exciting. Um, so when actually, when we were doing the experiments, you couldn't believe it's like, is this true? Like, is, is this working? Are these results real? And we have to run it like multiple times. <laughs> and now if we can dive a little bit deeper here, maybe one more level. Our audience is at this point quite familiar with the notion that you can train a large neural network. If you have an input, 
and an output in a neural network will, from enough data, learn the pattern to go from input to output. And can you maybe describe in, in your setting, the shape to vec setting, how is that set up? What's the input to the neural, neural network and what is it supposed to output to train mm. on? So the idea here was we wanted to create semantically or semantic aware descriptors. So let's say for hand-drawn sketches, the input will be uh, an image of a hand-drawn sketch and then the output for the neural network will be uh, the word chair. If your sketch was a chair, then you want to train the network to give you a vector that corresponds to the word chair. And so by doing that process, you are basically uh, encoding uh, your hand-drawn sketches into descriptors that have some sort of semantic meaning that, is, that kind of explain what is in that image. So you do that for the world of sketches and you repeat that process for the world of images, natural images. You repeat that for 3D shapes. In the case of 3D shapes, what you would do, because they're not two-dimensional, they're actually in 3D dimension, what you can do is then you take multiple random renderings of your 3D shape. So now you have, let's say, 12 images for your 3D shape, and you go through that same process where you are encoding them into a semantic aware descriptor. And so because you've done that for each of those modalities, you now have a descriptor for anything that you draw at. Uh, so you have an ensemble of train networks, and you can then use that at any given moment in time to compute a descriptor for a given query. It sounds like, the, in some sense, the labels that you're relying upon is that the images and shapes you're retrieving from the internet mm -hmm. to train on might have some annotation with them. It might already say chair or table or maybe something even more detailed, allowing you to have a desired output that the neural network is supposed to generate. Yes, because it would be really difficult to put all of them in the same training, in the, in the same training process, just because they are very, very different type of objects. I mean, back at the time, now these days you can do much more complex things that, you know, you can use, <laughs> you, you can use adversarial networks, you can do more interesting things. But at the time, it was one way of bridging between two different type of input uh, by using different networks for each of them. And so you trained a separate network for processing 3D compared to a network you use for processing a sketch versus another network to process an image, but it all needs to lead to the same embedding space where exactly. things that are related are close together. That's really yes. cool. Yeah. I mean, some of the latest results um, now, five years later, I mean, you must be very excited about those because it's kind of a, in some sense, a continuation on your work, like OpenAI's clip which is embedding language and images into the same space is in many ways very, very similar to what you're doing there with, with the shape to vac Since that piece of work, I kind of evolved into more 3D augmented reality work. So I'm not, I'm not super up to speed with the work that's happening around that specifically. But yeah, I've seen amazing demos of like, you know, it's how the space has moved. It's crazy. And so... You look at work from like three years ago and it's, it's like, it's like this was 20 years ago, like it has moved that fast. So it's quite amazing what I'm seeing now in that space and the new data sets that are coming out because I know how hard it is to create a data set. So I just have, you know, my respect for these teams that put together these data sets to really push the field. So it's, it's amazing. And so you're working on your PhD and mm -hmm. a lot of people on these days, and, and also, you know, several, when you did your PhD a few years ago, when they work on their PhD, most people with an AI PhD end up at a big company these days. Some of them become yeah. faculty, but you decided to do yet something else. Like, how, how did you converge on deciding to start your own company? It was not an easy decision because all my friends, when all my colleagues, when work for big, big companies, Google, Microsoft Research at the time, um, I had just done, finished my internships in the HoloLens team at Microsoft Research, and they were doing amazing, super interesting things. So obviously, there was a temptation to go back and work there. So, but on the other side, I kind of also was thinking of, I've been thinking of entrepreneurship, entrepreneurship for a long time. Uh, there was a lot of activities happening around the AI space and entrepreneurship. 
And I feel like, yeah, it was now or never. If I wanted to ever do my own thing, then I had to do it now, you know, because this was, it was the ideal time for me. Because you go into, you go into the job, if it, 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 it's difficult once you are kind of settled somewhere to then make the big change. So it was a combination of, you know, feeling that it was now or never, or, or, and also off of the work, the shape to work work that we just talk of, talk about. Like the results were so amazing. I was like, okay, I, do I really want to stop there? Uh, I feel like, you know, there, there's more to explore, especially from um, an entrepreneurship viewpoint. And I want to try that. So I did, I tried it. Yeah. So what did you start building? The main question after Shape to Vec, where we, we say, okay, we could take a sketch, we could take an image and we could find a 3D shape for it. Can you then take that concept and then extend that to scenes, 3D scenes? So you're not just looking at one object, you're now looking at a whole space, like say your living room. And so could you then, from an image, maybe a video, reconstruct and digitize your whole living room? And then you could use that for different type of applications. And so Celerio was basically, our motto was bridging the gap between what's real and what's virtual. And it was this whole idea of digitizing everything around you so that you can augment it with virtual experiences. So that was the cell when we started. Now that's a very technological, I'd say, starting point where there's this new opportunity, something that wasn't possible before to turn reality into a digital counterpart thanks to 3D vision that you're leading the way in. At Celerio, did you also have some specific applications in mind or were you thinking of providing this as a tool for others to build applications on top? We had a few applications in mind, mostly around augmented reality. And there were also some applications in VR, but really we saw ourselves as a platform on which other people would build their experiences. And I was just that we could take all this research, all of these very technical bits and hide them behind an API, behind a platform uh, to basically empower anyone who was in augmented reality in the, in, the, in the visual art space to kind of build on top of that and just benefit from all of these technological advances without having to necessarily understand what's happening in the back end. And so... We were, yeah, Slayer was very much like a, an R&D startup, very, very tech-driven. And then what we would do is that we would be uh, partnering with various uh, companies to basically see what type of application would best leverage the, the tech that we had built. And were there some specific applications that you started building or started partnering on? Oh, yeah. So I think there were, there were things like, I mean, there are some companies that were looking at it from a lenses, like Google, not Google lens, but like, let, let's think of snap lenses, right? You could, let's say what you, what you are doing with, um, with face filters, you could do that with your space. You could, um, because you had context, because now you had context aware, um, AR, you could kind of trigger some experiences based on what your camera was looking at. Uh, so one of the applications was really entertainment and filters, but filters for your space, not necessarily for your face. And so the, that was one. And then the one that we also found very, very interesting that then led us to where we are today was a more utility driven application where because we know what we are looking at, we can help you fix it. We can tell you how to use it. So that was a a much more interesting one. Now, when you decided to start Celerio, how did you get the team together to start the company? So at the time, my co-founder was at Amazon, did a very, very good job, uh, leading, leading products. So I started talking with him, and incidentally, he's also my brother, so it was quite easy to say, oh, I have this idea, what do you think? Um, we have no idea how it's going to work, there's no funding. So um, could you just leave your job and then let's, let's come and let's figure this thing out. Did I hear correctly that your brother is one of your co-founders? Exactly. Oh, that's uh, so exciting. I mean, I, at the time, I couldn't think of anyone else who had kind of the expertise that he had. I was coming from the academic, you know, background. He had the industry experience, knew how to build product and sell products to like big customers. 
And obviously, because I've known him all my life, <laughs> like there was a trust, which I think is one of the key things when you are starting a company, especially a co-founder, is is having that trust because sometimes startups fail because the co-founder usually didn't work out. Now, you said, okay, why don't you quit your job and why don't we start this company together? Um, and you had no money for the company yet. Uh, what, what did you say? So, to be fair, you've been talking about it. I had been hinting at it for, um, for, quite a bit, for, for some time now. And then, yeah, basically, I tried to, I tried to convince him. But to be fair, he was also, it was that thing where you try to convince the other person and then... When and at some point you're like, okay, I'm not sure we should do that, and then he convinces you, and then so at any point in time, if one person was like, oh, I'm not sure, the other person was like, no, let's let's do it, let's do this. The idea is amazing, the tech is awesome, our team is very strong. There's just no there's there's no harm in trying. We could we could give this one year, right? Just take one year of your life, dedicate to this, and then you see where it goes. Um, so yeah, he was very much in, um, very, he, I think without his expertise and his experience, I mean, we wouldn't be where we are today. So I was very lucky that he said yes. Oh, that's such a beautiful story. Is there a moment that is the moment where it was just like, okay, we're doing this? Because we had no money, we had to kind of figure out how you're going to pay our rent for those first three months. My funding for my PhD had ended. I mean, I couldn't use my PhD funding to go start my company. So I had to figure out how I was going to pay rent. So we went through this, we applied for this accelerator called Entrepreneur First in London. And so they were very different from other accelerators at the time because they invested in the team, not necessarily the idea. And so you could just come to them and say, uh, we are, this is us. We kind of want to work in this space roughly. I'm not sure, you know, exactly what uh, the product is going to be or who the customer is going to be, but just give us money to figure this thing out. Um, and so that was really good. So they accepted us. And so that was kind of the point where we felt like it was validation. And we kind of knew that at least for the next six months, We'll we'll have enough money to pay rent, and so I think that was the moment when they said, "Yes, uh, you got into the program." That you say, "Okay, you are really doing this. This is for real." Oh, what's the name of the accelerator? Entrepreneur First, so EF. So then you dive in and you start building, and at some point, you get acquired. (laughs) How did that come about? Yeah, it's interesting. So it was about two, two years and a half after we officially started. And so in, the, in that space of time, we had John EF, of course, got through the six months program, uh, did some fundraising, uh, hired our first employees, which, which they were amazing. I think there were times where we just felt really, we felt like no matter what happened, we are just so grateful to have had this team. Because the whole team was just so dedicated, all through the ups and the down. And then towards the end of 2018, we have finally, we have our first, we have a better ready version of the Cilio API. So something that we can kind of put out there and people can, can really use it and start building things around. So that was an exciting time. And then one of the people who who uh, were trying out, testing our beta was Stream. And so they, they asked us the, for a call. It's like, this is exciting. Let's drop on a call and let's, let's talk more. And so that's how we start talking about their application with, um, maybe I should talk about what Stream does. So Stream was really one of the first AR companies, augmented reality companies that were doing AR interactive video. So um, think of your typical Skype, but with AR on top of it. So the idea was that you could enhance customer service uh, by using AR and help people fix, you know, help people with like fixing their fridge, uh, learning how to get started with their washing machine when it just came in. Uh, If you have video, but also you have augmented reality tools, to kind of guide you around the 3D space. So they were looking at our tech as a way of recognizing what 
the camera was looking at and then just activating the right experience for that machine. And so when they saw the, the API, they were super excited. And so they, they, call, they call us and then they ask, okay, is there, because we, at, at the time where we were also looking at what is the right application for this, how do we increase the impact of our work and how do we kind of go fast uh, into this space? And so it just, felt, it just felt right that they had the right application and they felt that we had the right uh, technology that could really uh, kind of increase the impact and accelerate their growth. So that's how it all came about. So when they approached you and they, they, they acquired your company, right? I mean, it, yeah. as you said, it's exciting because you can have direct impact and you can see the past impact, but at the same time, you're also giving up the ownership of the thing you've been building. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it must have been, I mean, must not have been an easy decision. It was, it, it wasn't, it wasn't, um, there were a lot of discussions and this was with everyone, uh, even the employees around whether we thought stream was, so it was just a matter of, you know, getting acquired, but what, is this the right company for us? Is the culture right? Uh, do we feel like what the mission of what we are doing, do we feel like you can continue that within stream and would they support that? Uh, so there was a, there were a lot of questions around just, just will this keep us happy? Cause you don't want to get acquired and then just lose yourself in the process. Um, so we, and so stream, stream is amazing. The stream, uh, founding team, the, I think because at the time we were talking up to other companies, it wasn't just stream that came to us and say, Oh, you might be interested in an acquisition, but we felt like stream had the right, um, the, just the right culture and also the right vision of augmented reality. I mean, for us, it was all about being really blurring this gap where you feel where it's, it's, you can easily move from the real to the virtual without having any disconnect and where things feel, things feel magical almost that it's, it's magic. And so we wanted to keep building the tech and stream was basically was, was all in with that. And so we could build the, the tech knowing that we could test that tech in the applications that they were putting out there. And but that said, it was still a bittersweet moment, right? Because this is almost like you are baby and you are and you are kind of to be fair, you will never you will no longer be in control. And so it wasn't easy to let it wasn't easy letting go. Um, but uh I think looking back, it was just the perfect decision. It, it was it was the right decision to make for what we were trying to build. Well, c congratulations. Uh, so I was actually Thank checking you. out uh, some of the demos on the stream website. I mean, you're heading up computer vision there. You're heading up all, all yeah. essentially, you know, the special sauce that that's being built <laughs> is what you're heading up, right? And so I was checking it out and mm -hmm. I saw in the demo that essentially you can use it on, on a phone. You don't need anything but, but your phone and you don't even need to install yes. an app. You, you can just in browser run it and it accesses yeah. your camera as I understand it. And it streams, so yeah, we're on a video call with somebody on the other side, but the other side can actually start annotating things in your screen. And yes. so it's like you're holding up your phone and somebody can, can point out like, oh, you know, th th this wire is loose over here. Um, mm -hmm. You just need to plug that back in or maybe, you know, you need to press this button over here to test if this can still work. And I thought it was really, really interesting yes. because it feels like whenever I'm on a support call normally, well, first of all, I feel like I'm usually talking to a machine. I probably am usually mm -hmm. talking to a machine most of the time until finally um, somebody comes about. But even then, the feedback doesn't tend to be very specific to the situation I'm in. It tends to be a very generic script, even when it's a person mm -hmm. of like, okay, have you unplugged? Can you replug? Have you done this? Have you done that? As opposed to them just seeing the setup and being able to point at the things I'm supposed to do. And so I'm really curious as um, Stream rolls out this this application of of the AR AI technology, um, are there some specific specific scenarios that are the most you know common use cases that you see a lot and that are really exciting to you? I love how you kind of expl explain what the experience is like. It's it's really for I think it's magical. Like anyone who uses Stream for the first time, they're, they're just like wow because the experience is just so flawless. 
And so what happens is that, well, first, stream um, vision or mission is to make the world expertise accessible to everyone. And so understanding that you have these experts around the world that are not necessarily, um, you know, that can't necessarily come into your space every single time. So how do you access that expertise remotely? And so do you, you have me, the consumer, I have my phone, I don't need to install anything. So first, that's, that's, that's amazing. I don't have to install anything on my phone. I can call an expert. Let's say one of, one of our big customers is Best Buy and they use that for their customers. And so I can call a, 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 an expert and say, well, I have this issue in my home. Can you help me figure out what's happening? And so you just have to turn on your camera. So first you just make a call like a normal call. Uh, there's a bit of uh, magic that happens there. Your video turns on. And then the expert can say, well, I see this issue here. Can you go there? In the back end, the AI is figuring out what are you looking at. You are able to say, the expert is able to say, well, let me measure this for you because maybe I need to ship in some replacement part for, for let's say, your fridge or, or something else. And the idea is that then when, if they ever need to come into your space physically, they have all this data available to them. They know exactly what's wrong how to fix it, it just means that it's less expensive for the expert because they don't have to come in physically. And for you, it's just more convenient, right? Because you can access that expertise at any point in time along your journey. Uh, and so we have a lot of customers. Best Buy is one of them. Trigger, if you use any barbecue grills, people use it a lot to figure out what's wrong, you know, why it's not working. Uh, some people also use it for retail, you know, house viewing uh, and things like that. But I really think that customer service and just troubleshooting is what is a big pain point for customers. And that's one of the big things that I think Stream is really transforming with these AI interactive videos. Now, when you zoom out for a moment and you think about the future of Stream, if, if you're able to share, I don't know, what are some of the things yeah. that you are hoping to build in the near future? So we, we are all about the home, um, so at Stream. So we focus in on the home, what's happening inside. And for now, we, we, have, we have things like being able to reconstruct your space. We can understand, we can measure things. We can help you figure out what is the right replacement for, for some items in your home. Uh, maybe figure out, you know, help you connect you with an expert and help you fix something. But for me, I think the next, the next, the big thing for us is basically what happens when you actually can get that expertise without talking to someone necessarily. So I'm talking of like what we are working towards because now you have so much data around what is typically wrong with this, this item, how are people usually fixing it? Can you now leverage that information to have AI experts, in a sense, that can help you without having to connect you to, some, to, to someone else, help you figure out what's wrong with what you're looking at. And if they cannot, then somewhere along the journey, connecting with, with the human expert, that can give you more, more help. And so there's, there's, there's something that is kind of in the works around AI expertise, but focus on the home, focus on... Uh, you know, how do we best support our customers with the items that are inside their homes? This would be a bit extreme, but I can just imagine like the app looking at me as I'm trying to build some, let's say, IKEA furniture, and it'll just say, "Oh, you're picking up the wrong part <laughs> for the next step." It's you know, yeah. you got the wrong part, or I can even yeah. like in in the app highlight the part to pick up and things like that, or how to install something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think that's kind of like when I think of like magical experiences, how do we, yeah, how, how do we just make things easier for customers? For me, that's one of the key things that uh, we need to start doing because then it becomes more interactive. You don't necessarily have to wait for someone to be available, and, but it doesn't discount the fact that you can get help if you need to, but you don't have to. Now, if we zoom out even more, one of the biggest things that's happened, not necessarily in AR, but in VR, which is still a related space, is that 
Facebook has decided to prioritize VR with their metaverse and complete renaming, right? I'm curious, yeah. is that influencing some of what you're thinking about doing next? And yeah, just generally, what's your take on that? So, um, yeah, so they did, there's been a long AR VR debate happening in our field, for a long, long time. And we'll continue to have them for a long time still. My perspective is that when it comes to um, utility, the utility space, when it comes to um, basically what is going to be more impactful or more helpful to customers, I feel like AR is, is the right way. Just because you are, you are not, you are not shutting yourself in a bubble almost. You are, AR kind of helps you bring in a virtual, only the virtual bit that is needed while you are still connected to your whole space and to the reality of what is around you. And so I think for us, at least we have not changed our path based on because, you know, everyone is going crazy about the metaverse. I do. I mean, we did see the metaverse coming. I mean, even during scenario, there were some VR applications that we were looking at around exactly digitizing your whole space and then creating a VR experience where it's your space, but virtual. Personally, for me, uh, I cannot even spend like more than 30 minutes in VR. Uh, I, I, it's, the, it, it's, it's just, for me, it's not a pleasant experience. And I think that it's not going anywhere. I mean, the metaverse is here to stay, but I don't think that people will be spending hours of their life in, in the metaverse. I just, I just don't think so. And I think that if you had well-built AI experiences where it's, it's like, I can just have something on my table that is virtual that I can interact with, but I'm still connected to people, real people and real things around me, then I think it's, it's just more impactful and more helpful and kind of less more human in a way. Yeah. I mean, I personally prefer to be in, in, in the real world, but I, I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, lo some people love playing video games and it seems like people who love playing video games will likely, well, are not unlikely to, to enjoy being in, in the virtual world, maybe. I was going to say that I, I do think that one of the um, main applications of VR is gaming. And I've, I've done gaming in VR, it's just, and compared to gaming in VR and in, in versus gaming in AR, VR wins every single time. And so because gaming is one of those experiences where really you want to be immersed in the experience and VR just makes sense for that. So I think the metaverse is here to stay. Whether or not it's going to be applicable to every single area of your life, I don't think I, I, don't think I buy that. Yeah, we'll have to see. I'm not... I'm, I'm not expecting to spend too much time in, in VR myself, but you never know. I mean, things always change. It's hard to predict. Yeah. Actually, on one of the things, if you go to an AI conference, um, I'm sure you experienced mm -hmm. it during a PhD and many times since, is that um, it's pretty obvious diversity is lacking on many, many axes. Um, gender diversity, racial diversity. I mean, pretty much any, any axis you can think of diversity is, is definitely uh, lacking in AI. One of the exciting trends in AI that, you know, even though we haven't solved the problem <laughs> yet, of course, at least there is more and more awareness of this problem and the missed opportunities. And you've played a big role in that um, through your work in Black in AI. So can you maybe say a little bit more about, you know, what made you decide to get involved in, in Black in AI and, and what is so exciting about what Black in AI has done and is continuing to do? I mean, like, I, I think one of the uh, organizations that I kind of, I'm so impressed with, I think one of the ones that have been more impactful in the field is Black in AI. If I'm not mistaken, it was founded in 2018 by um, like amazing researchers, uh, Tim Need, Reddit, and, and many others. Um, we kind of saw that, well, there was, where were, you know, where was the black community in, in AI? Like they would go to a conference and there would be four of them. And at the time, and if you remember, like I came in AI a bit later, because I was coming from a, a 3D vision uh, background. And equally in 3D vision, or even in graphics, same, it was kind of the same thing. When you go to a conference and there's just a, very little diversity. And so when I heard of the initiative that you know, Black in AI uh, 
was doing in 2018, I wanted to be part of it. So I think initially the first workshop, I just wanted to go and see who, who else was there. Like, because Black in AI is all about, you know, bringing together uh, Black researchers in AI and in, encouraging them and supporting them. And so I think one of the big things that they did was just to say that, oh, well, you're not alone. It's not just you. There are other people in this field. Let's come together and connect. And I think that was one of the big things that kind of drew me in at the start. And, uh, and then the following year, I wanted to be more involved. So I decided that I was going to be one of the co-organizers of the flagship event, which happens at Emirates every year. I think for me, it was, it was a lot of work, but one of the most refreshing and, you know, one of the most impactful things that I felt like I've done because it was all about bringing all of these black researchers from around the world, like from every single corner. It was amazing just where they were coming from and, and just the richness of, of, of the body of work in that community. So I was, yeah, I was really glad to be part of that. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's been absolutely amazing. And, and maybe as a personal anecdote, I want to highlight here is that um, the Black in AI workshop is not not just for Black researchers in AI. Everybody's invited, right? I mean, it's an opportunity for everybody to, to come and see all the great work that's being done uh, by Black researchers mm -hmm. and entrepreneurs and engineers and so forth. But at NeurIPS, it's, it's mostly researchers, of course, all the mm -hmm. amazing work that's that's being done. And I actually remember, I think the first one was indeed in, was it 2017 or 2018? It was in Long Beach, uh, California. Yes. And I remember coming to the, the workshop and the dinner after, and it was just, the event was just absolutely amazing. I felt like I'd never been at an event, at an academic event <laughs> with so much energy mm -hmm. and excitement. Um, it was really contagious, honestly. Um, and it wasn't just me being there. I mean, a bit as an outsider, of course, but very welcome and, and, and you know, really enjoying everything that was going on. Um, mm. Other other people who were invited said the same thing. Like, they're like, this this is the highlight of the conference. Every, everything I've been to this week, I'm like, this is where the energy is at. This is where, you know, things are, are going to be happening. Uh, it was absolutely yeah. mind-blowing going from, as you said, maybe, you know, you can't even find another black person at the conference to having this event with, I think there was more than a hundred, maybe even 200. Um, it was quite yeah, a change. It was amazing. And then when I was uh, co-organizing it in 2019, it was like 500. It was, it was, I mean, the growth also of the organization has been amazing. It just shows that it's really, it's something that was really needed in the field. I don't think anybody would have dared to predict that uh, before that first workshop happened. Um, it's absolutely yeah. stunning. And yeah. hopefully it makes some people's journeys easier, right? I mean, your journey, I mean, was a pretty long one uh, from Cameroon to South Africa to the UK to finally get yeah. to work on the exact thing you wanted to be working on, right? And so hopefully um, yeah. other people's journeys now can be a lot abbreviated <laughs> and more directly get yeah. involved in the things they want to do. Yeah, I mean, there have been a lot of success stories from people just being at Black and AI. People have, you know, found that job, job opportunities through that, um, you know, their supervisors uh, at, the, at a Black and AI uh, event or dinner. So, yeah, for a lot of, I mean, we, there, there is real data showing that the, the, the initiative has really, you know, uh, made great impact in, in, in people's lives. So it, for me, it's, and then as, as an organizer to just kind of hear someone saying, oh, this is the first time that I've presented, you know, in an AI uh, event, or this is, or, you know, I had these opportunities because I was able to come to this event. It's, yeah, it's just inspiring. And then when you kind of, Think of even the struggle for people to, when we're organizing it, like people to even come to the conference because of visa issues. And, and I think it's, uh, it's been, it was a roller coaster, but then the end result is so much worth it. Now, a lot of progress has been made, but I mean, obviously a lot more progress has to be made, right? And so mm -hmm. when you look at the future, 
for blocking AI and more generally diversity in, in AI. What are some of the things that you think are, are really important for all of us to pay attention to and to put energy into? So we look at, so I'm talking, we talk about black and AI, mostly in the, the, a lot of the focus obviously is in academia, although you, we also have like entrepreneurship, entrepreneurs coming to black and AI, and people from the industry. Uh, but if I zoom, zoom, I zoom out a bit, what I've seen um, around diversity efforts within organizations, looking at things like big corporate, things like, you know, universities and all their diversity efforts. One of the questions that, that we often ask ourselves is like, is this, is this moving the needle fast enough? And especially like in the recent years, you, you hear a lot of companies say, oh, we are, we are dedicating this much to diversity efforts. And then um, I think people, uh, people who are kind of working in diversity really question themselves, like, is this, is, is this actually working? And I think that one of, one of the, um, well, not to be pessimistic. So the middle is moving, right? Because now you have these spaces where people feel like, okay, I, I, have, I have a network I can rely on. Now, within organizations, when people kind of create diversity efforts, uh, there's usually a, a bit of skepticism because you look at sometimes the, 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 you look at some, the, the team of a company and you, and you see that the only black person is the DNI person, is the DNI officer. Uh, you look at a university and you look at, oh, who are black people here? And you feel like, oh, they're only part, all of them are aggregated in the same team. Maybe it's the ethics team. Maybe it's the bias in AI team. And so there is a whole question that I started asking myself that now that we have realized that, yes, we want more diversity in these spaces, are we now just, you know, um, are we really talking about diversity everywhere or are we just seeing it as a numbers game? that, oh, we can create these spaces and then allocate them to diverse people to fill in, and then that's how we increase our numbers. And, and so, and you see the same in, in, in entrepreneurship where companies talk about, investors talk about, we want more diverse, we want a more diverse portfolio, but there's a requirement that, oh, if you are, um, if you are black, then we want you to be working on the black-related problem. And so, the, so from, from what I'm saying is that there is an issue that could happen where we want diversity, but somehow that diversity has to be allocated to a specific area in your organization, in your university, or in your invest, investor portfolio, which I don't think serves the community. Um, and so that's just one, one bit that I wanted to touch on that, um, when we talk about diversity, it's really diversity everywhere, uh, not just in a specific, uh, in the specific area that is well, that is separate from others. That absolutely resonates, and um, I think that that's so good, you know, to hear that from you. I think, I mean, if I look at at Berkeley, I look at Govern, definitely. I mean, a lot of progress to be made. I think people are trying. I think there's, there is a notion people are paying attention to it, are trying hard. And of course, at Berkeley, I mean, we've been really fortunate because um, we were able to recruit uh, Radiat Abebe to join us as a faculty. It's amazing. Yeah. And so her influence yeah. and her ability to open our eyes to things we wouldn't see before is just unbelievable, right? And so... I, I feel I feel I feel really lucky that um you know that she's spending the time with us to you know she is not spending time just on her own research but also you know helping us see you know what what we're not seeing yet and I think it's really very quickly within one year uh, made such tremendous impact on on the community we're building at Berkeley which has been you know amazing. No, that's that's amazing, and I, I think that when you have people like her, like not only people like her in this in, in like in these universities for instance, but also universities that are kind of willing and organizations that are willing to understand and mix and kind of understand and make space for change to be made, I think that can be a really powerful combination. So yeah, I'm super excited about that. 
Yeah, one of the things I'm excited to hear when I listen to you is, I mean, obviously I'm hearing a lot of work ahead, but I'm also hearing some optimism that it sounds like you're optimistic that, you know, things yeah. are, are moving in a good direction. Uh, yeah, things, things, things are definitely moving. And I just, I just think that um, it's just a matter of not being complacent and think, oh, things are moving. It's fine now. You can, you can relax. And even though things are moving, I think that they are also, there's just, because things are also moving. I mean, there's a lot of effort, as you say, right? And a lot of people really want to solve these problems, but it's, it's also quite nuanced. And so there's a potential of, of, to, of moving too fast because we want to solve it, move fast, and then maybe miss other blind spots that we all have. So. I, I think that it's it's just a it's an it's an ongoing effort, and I think I see a lot actually a lot of that happening in the academia academic space. So I see a lot of change happening there. Other spaces not so much, but uh, especially when you, it comes to corporate and and uh, entrepreneurship, I think in those spaces it's still a lot has to be done in terms of just people being willing to to make changes within the organizations which I think universities are more willing to do right now. Now, one thing I'm curious about is if a new person is trying, you know, from an underrepresented group is interested in AI and maybe they feel a little, you know, that they're a little isolated. Um, if they don't feel isolated, well, great, then, you know, they're good to go. But if they feel a little isolated, what are some suggestions you might have for them to, you know, get connected and, you know, be more part of the community? Uh, so I'll, I'll just say, please go to blackinai.org and there you there's just a lot of information around uh, how to get connected to the community, whether it's on Facebook, uh, you have mailing list, we actually even have a forum for job, for job opportunities. So it's just a very powerful, a very, very powerful resource for anyone who identifies as black. So I will, I, I will just invite them to go to the Black in AI dot org because also what happened what what we, what the organization does is that typically at every event there is um, a black and ai social gathering so i co-organized one at um ccv um like a few months ago where it's just again a possible for, for people to just come come together and connect and so you will hear about all of those opportunities if you are connected to the black and ai uh, organization so and i think even if they don't feel even if they find they feel like oh uh i'm fine i don't really need to connect i still i still feel like we would love to have them because we would love to connect and see what they are doing all the amazing work that they are doing so um and i'll say i'll also invite anyone who don't doesn't necessarily in, uh, identify as black to come to one of our events as you said right the energy is amazing it's for everyone to come and yeah, you will never forget it. I couldn't recommend it any more highly, actually. It's, it's absolutely amazing. Yeah. Flora, I think that that's a really great kind of message to, to end on maybe. Um, so nice to have you on. Um, this was a really stimulating conversation. Super interesting. Uh, thanks for making the time. Thank you. Thank you for, for the invitation and uh, yeah. And to your whole team for making this happen. Thanks again. It's been a real pleasure having you on.